Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 3, 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God to us. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, my name is Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad to be here with you guys. It's been eight weeks, I think, or seven weeks since I got to preach here last, and I know that for a couple of reasons. I know that because I started our series in Genesis. I got to preach the introduction to it, and I think there's been six since then, and that's significant to me because my bookmark in the Bible that I preach from is in the same spot that it was in when I started this series eight weeks ago. It means that we haven't gotten very far in seven weeks together. But if we've been on the same page, literally in the Bible for seven weeks, we're gonna do something this morning a bit faster because we're actually gonna move from the passage that was read at the end of chapter three through all of chapter four and all of chapter five. Now, we're not gonna read it all unless the Spirit of God moves and that's where we head. Um, I, I wanna do this in a summary kind of way for us, a flyover way. And, and I, I pray that we see something really significant about what it's like for us as human beings to live outside of Eden and what it's like for us as human beings to live under the promises of God. So let's pray together, and then we'll dive into this lengthy text um, together. Jesus, we've sung songs about your goodness and your glory and your faithfulness. We've confessed together that we're sinful and that you're gracious and merciful. I ask now that you would just bring us through that same cycle again. Help us to see your glory Help us to see our need. I ask that as we run through these vignettes, really from Adam to Noah is what we're about to do. Would you help us be sobered by the gruesome and atrocious reality of sin? Not as if sin is something out there that other people are doing, but sin is a power inside of us that we need to be delivered from. Sober us, God. And I, I ask that you would show us the glorious sweetness, the kind of God you are that comes after his people, that pursues us, that loves us, that sacrifices himself for our redemption. So come and speak to us through your word now. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, whether you're new with us or you've been here for every week in Genesis, let me just quickly name what we've walked through together in our first seven weeks in the first three chapters of Genesis. We've talked about God's glorious intention and expression in the creation of the universe. We've talked about humanity as the crown of God's creation, humanity created in the image of God. We've talked about the glorious origin of work that God designed for us as humans, vocation. We've talked about the glorious and stunning differences and beauty and similarities that God has created in us as man, and woman, we've seen the glory of God expressed in two genders, male and female. And then we saw the vandalism of it all in the fall and the sin of humanity. Cornelius Plantiga, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, calls sin vandalism of shalom. And shalom, by the way, isn't just peace or the absence of war. Shalom describes the entirety of the cosmos functioning as God intended it to function for his glory and for our joy. Shalom is the way the world is supposed to be. And if you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, the thing you long for when you cry out against brokenness and fallenness and injustice, whether you have a name for it or not, is the shalom of God. Plantiga rightly says we have vandalized shalom. It's as if we've been presented this glorious meticulously crafted work of stained glass. And in the rebellion and selfishness of humanity, we've shattered it. And now we're left to carry it around with us all the time. With the inherent glory still present in it, but the brokenness cutting us and confusing us and slowing us down all the time. We're going to begin our time this morning seeing how humanity will attempt to live their lives outside of the focused covenantal presence of God. This morning in Genesis, we will for the first time step outside of the garden, step outside of the way it's supposed to be. And what I want us to notice is from here on out, both in Genesis and in all of the scriptures and indeed in all of our human experience, from this moment in Genesis chapter three forward, humanity is moving Humanity is moving geographically. The movement in Genesis is always east. I don't know if you noticed that. As God banishes the man and his wife, our great-great-grandparents, the first humans from the garden, he banishes them east. And humanity is always moving east. 
geographically at first in Genesis and then spiritually and symbolically in every moment since. Listen to how theologian Peter Lightheart describes this. He says, from Genesis chapter 3, west to east movement is always movement away from God's presence in his house. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden to the east. And when Cain was later cast out, he was sent to the land east of Eden. The men of Babel, the nations that descended from Noah, traveled east and settled in the valley of Shinar to build their city and their tower. Eastward movement is always movement away from God. Westward movement is always movement back toward the garden. And then Old Testament scholar John Salehammer says it like this. In the Genesis narratives, when people go east, they leave the land of blessing, Eden and the promised land, and they go to a land where their greatest hopes will turn to ruin, Babylon and Sodom. Hey, brothers and sisters, you and I, just like Adam and Eve, just like Cain, just like the founders of Babel, are always moving east. This is life in exile. And because of the fall and because of the curse, we're always experiencing this distance, geographically, symbolically, relationally, dispositionally, distance from the covenant presence of God. And we gotta ask, how do we live life outside of Eden? Because we're always longing for it. Everything that motivates every human being is a longing to get back to that glorious position of unhindered relationship with the creator and sustainer, God. Can I invite you to consider that everything you're longing for in your life is found in Eden. But the, but the reality we see in the Bible is we're never going back. We're, we're never going back to Eden. Despite all of our efforts to get back on our own, God has purposes for us that are actually beyond Eden. And so my questions for us this morning as we walk through these vignettes in Genesis are, what do we do with the longing that we bear inside our bodies for Eden? The longing for things to be the way they're supposed to be. What do you personally do with that longing? And what do you do with the unmet expectations of what you yearn for, the way you know the world is supposed to be, and the way it is? How, how do you fill up that gap? How do we live literally <coughs> under the curse? We see from Genesis 3, 22 and onward, we live outside the garden, we live under the curse, and we live looking toward the fulfillment of the promises of God. Outside the garden, 
under the curse, looking toward the fulfillment of the promises of God. So what I want us to do this morning, I I want us to quickly fly over three vignettes from Genesis chapter three to five. I want us to look firstly at the passage that was read for us, verses 22 to 24 of chapter three, and talk about how God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. Secondly, I want us to look at the first half or so of Genesis chapter four and see this shocking, terrifying story of the first murder in human history. And then thirdly, I want us to just fly over the genealogy of Adam's descendants from Adam to Noah in chapter five of Genesis. So if you didn't bring a Bible with you, because I'm not gonna throw all these verses on the screen and I'm obviously not gonna make us read them all. But if you didn't bring a Bible with you, grab one from the windows in the side or you just Google Genesis three in your, in your phone and we can be there together because I'm just gonna point at verses as we go. But as we walk through these, these three vignettes, I want you to see two things. I want you to notice two things in particular. I want us to notice and grieve the potency and the pervasiveness of sin. It only gets worse, as a matter of fact. And then secondly, I want us to see the grace and loving kindness of God. Even God banishing Adam and Eve from the garden is an expression of his grace and his loving kindness. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Sally Lloyd-Jones' Jesus Storybook Bible, one of my favorite books of all times. But our text this week led me to grab off my shelf the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I ran to this passage that will, I pray, overarch not just our time this morning in the Scriptures, but all of our time in the Scriptures and all of our time until Jesus returns. Listen to what she says. You see that no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never-stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Her translation of the Hebrew word chesed. It's an amazing translation. And though they would forget about him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children yearning for their home. How do we live east of Eden? Let's look at vignette number one, Genesis chapter three, verse 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree in life and eat and live forever. And then God doesn't even finish the sentence. God interrupts himself and says, therefore, send them out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which they were taken. Humans are sent out of Eden to do the same thing we were created to do now outside the covenant, tangible, personal presence of God. Now outside of paradise, now under the curse, now longing for the presence of God, we are doing the same thing we were made to do. Verse 24, he drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, banishing our great-grandparents from the Garden of Eden is God's first way in securing the means by which his curse will be carried out. 
Because barred from the tree that sustains immortality symbolically, humans are now left to die. And I remember as a new Christian reading verse 22 and kind of being weirded out. I was like, for real, is God afraid? Is God like so scared that he can't have threats around him? But God banishing Adam and Eve from the garden isn't a manifestation of his fear. It's a manifestation of his love, of his grace, of his generosity. Because think about how badly things are now broken for Adam and Eve. They are now cursed. They now live at enmity with God, with one another, and with the ground, the earth that they've been created to live in relationship with. The most unloving thing God could do is just let them continue in that forever. For, for God to show them love, he actually invents death so that the perils of the curse don't have to last forever. Indy Wilson wrote a book several years ago called Death by Living. And in one of the chapters, he outlines death as this unbelievably generous gift from God. And he uses an illustration of being a high school athlete running track. Maybe you can, you know, remember what that was like, or maybe you can just imagine. But he says, could you imagine running track and you're running the 1500 or the mile or the 2000 or the 10,000 or whatever it is you're running. And you have your coach standing on the side of the track saying, hey, three more laps and you're finished. Two more laps and you're finished. Hey, this is the last lap to go and this is over. He says, that's what death is like for us. It's the kindness of God to say, this isn't going to be like this forever. Indy Wilson argues in that chapter, he's like, can you imagine what it would be like if in the midst of all the pain, in the midst of all the turmoil, in the midst of all the conflict, in the midst of all the brokenness, God stands on the sideline of your life and yells out, this never ends. For God to banish Adam and Eve from the tree of life is a gift. Death is a gift, strangely, in a broken and cursed world. And God sets cherubim, verse 24, these supernatural creatures that are referred to over 90 times in the Old Testament to guard the tree of life. And every time we see the cherubim present in the Old Testament, they're guarding the presence of God which is why we see the cherubim in places like the temple and the tabernacle preeminently. If you just want to jot down and look at later, Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, or 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 23 to 25, or 23 to 35, the cherubim are always symbolizing in the temple the presence of God. A human civilization from this moment forward will move eastward. From the moment God's lovingly and graciously removes Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of life. Humanity moves east from here on out. At first, geographically, and then metaphorically. Let's talk about Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel. 
Because now humanity moves on. Life is happening outside the garden. And humanity actually moves on, not just geographically, but Adam and Eve have children. And I realize some of you may not be familiar with this story. Let's just, let me summarize. I don't want to, we've got a lot of work to do. Hey, by the way, I wanted us to preach four sermons on death. And everyone's like, you are not going to do that with us. And instead, I got to preach one sermon on three and a half chapters. It seems like a fair exchange. Adam and Eve have two kids. And Eve's energy in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 is really beautiful. She's actually positively, hopefully saying, oh, God is actually fulfilling what he promised to me. Because God promises Eve that from her, from the fruit of her, will come the redemption and the breaking of all the curse. And she sees the birth of her child like that. They have two kids. And there's a handful of sermons in this passage. One of her kids was a farmer, and one of her kids was a rancher. And and there's tons of questions begged in the narrative. But what happens is Cain, the eldest, kills his younger brother. And there are a lot of questions to be asked here. Some would say, hey, what is the deal? Why does Cain make a sacrifice and Abel make a sacrifice? And God apparently accepts Abel's sacrifice, and he doesn't Cain's. I think the easiest summary is to say it has something to do not with the sacrifice that's offered, but with the disposition with which they're offered. Do do you live sacrificially as an attempt to be accepted by God or knowing that you are accepted by God? There's something of that in play. We, We don't know all the details of it, but what we do know is Cain is angry because his brother's sacrifice was accepted to God and his wasn't, which would lead me to believe Cain was trying to earn something from God. Cain wanted God to give him something because of his sacrifice. And therefore God says, hey, it's not the nature of your sacrifice that I'm concerned with. It's your disposition in bringing it to me. But what's important to see is God comes to Cain. Look at verse 6 of Genesis chapter 4. The Lord God comes to Cain and says, Hey, Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? I think it's important to note here that God doesn't come to Cain to attack him. He doesn't come to Cain to punish him. He lovingly pursues him. And the way a father says to a kid, Hey, what happened to your face? Where'd your smile go? What happened to your disposition? God is asking Cain questions about his heart. Now, can I tell you something that's really critical? Here's a study tip for the rest of your life when you read the Bible and you walk as a follower of Jesus. Anytime God comes to you and asks you questions, he's not looking for information. God knows everything. There's nothing he doesn't see. There's nothing he doesn't perceive. There's nothing he doesn't understand. When God asks you questions, he's not seeking information. He's seeking you. And he wants you to see something. He doesn't need to see anything. God isn't trying to discern your motivations. He's actually inviting you to consider your motivations. 
God lovingly comes to Cain and says, hey man, why are you angry? What's going on in your heart, Cain? And then he says to Cain, you need to be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. Verse 7. I want us to see here the potency of sin and the predatory nature of sin. God says to Cain, you think you're just frustrated. Let me tell you something. There is a predatory force at work here that desires to have you. See, sin isn't just actions. Sin isn't stuff you do. Sin is a power that grows by devouring you. I don't know how many of you are into the Instagram account, or I think there's TikTok accounts, Nature is Metal. Am I the only weird one here? If you want to spend some time on a rainy Sunday afternoon watching all kinds of animals eat one another, I mean, lions and tigers and cheetahs and hawks and snakes and crocodiles. The list goes on and on and on. Nature is metal is one of my guilty pleasures in the world. (laughs) And every time before these animals get destroyed, you realize that rabbit has no clue. (laughs) That's what God's saying to Cain. Hey, Cain, sin is like that crocodile. Sin is like that hawk. Sin is like that lion. This isn't just something you're entertaining in your mind. This is a power that seeks to destroy you. God asks Cain a second question because Cain doesn't respond to the first one. God invites Cain to evaluate his heart. God invites Cain to understand the pervasive and the potent and the predatory nature of sin. And instead of repenting and turning to God, Cain continues in this destructive act. And what do the scriptures tell us? What caused quarrels and fightings among you? You want stuff and you don't get it, so you murder people. And and now the first example of life outside the garden, we see murder. Cain wants something, doesn't even matter what it was. What's apparent to us is he doesn't get it. And because he doesn't get it, he kills his brother. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this. Sin has an abiding, growing presence in your life. If you commit sin, sin's not over. Sin is not simply an action. It's a force. It's a power. When you do sin, it's not now over, but actually it becomes a presence in your life. It takes shape, a shadow shape, and stays with you and begins to affect you. Where is sin crouching at your door right now? As you live outside the garden, under the curse, yearning for the promises of God to be fulfilled, longing to get back to Eden, where is sin crouching to devour you? And is it not the kindness of God 
to invite you to stand up and look around you and not be like one of those miserable animals on nature is metal. Sin is crouching at your door. God mercifully says to Cain. And I I think, by the way, after Cain's already killed his brother, when God comes back to him and says, hey, Cain, where's your brother? I think he's giving him another opportunity to search his heart, to repent, to say, oh, God, I wanted this thing. I didn't get it. I killed him. Will you forgive me? He doesn't do it. Sin hardens. Sin directs. Sin takes up habitation. Sin destroys. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 to 10, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, some people's sins go before them and you get found out early. And some people's sins come after them and you get found out later. Honest question with nothing to benefit except your joy. Where is sin crouching right now at your door desiring to kill you? And see, sin doesn't just grow in the heart of Cain. It increases in scope and potency across the generations of humanity. So chapter 5 offers us a summary of all the generations from Adam to Noah. Just let your eyes scan down Genesis chapter 5. Obviously, I'm not going to read it all to you, but I just want to highlight a couple of things to you. Firstly, it's important. Genesis 5 is important because it links the record of humanity from Adam directly to Noah, one generation at a time. And then it shows the result of sin in the human race. And the primary result of sin named eight times in this chapter is death. What sin does east of Eden is kill us. What sin does east of Eden is kill us. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, verse 14, verse 17, verse 20, verse 27, verse 31. We see this phrase over and over and over again, and he died and he died, and he died, and he had these kids, and he died. One person, one person, Enoch, look at verse 24, reminds us that death is not the final answer. What a crazy story. Enoch, the passage just tells us, oh, just casually, this person had a bunch of grandkids, and he died, then this person had a bunch of grandkids, and he died, then this person had a bunch of kids and grandkids, and he died. Oh, and then Enoch, he walked with God, and God came and got him. Just casually in the mix of the, no, 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 no. I, I, I need to know more about Enoch. Except the point is to remind us, death doesn't have the final word. And death wasn't the design for us anyway. And we see that again in verse 28 and 29 of Genesis 5. I'm going to read this for us. When Lamech had lived 182 years, or Lamech, however you want to do it, he fathered his son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed This one shall bring us relief from our work 
and the painful toil of our hands. In an amazing play on words, Lamech names his son a word that sounds like rest. And he says, hey, God has promises for us. And though it seems like we've gotten so far east of Eden that we can never come back, God will fulfill his promises to us. He will send one that will give us rest. In a personal letter written to a friend, J.R.R. Tolkien said this, of course there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we're all constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with the sense of exile. What are you doing with the groaning that you have as we live outside the garden? under the curse, yearning for the promises to be fulfilled? Are there ways that you're trying to deaden yourself to life east of Eden? Sneaking drinks, sneaking purchases. I had a friend text me yesterday joking after the tragic east of Eden loss of the Sooners to Kansas. He said, if you need me, I'll be spending the next few hours sad shopping on Amazon. <laughs> but as I read that, I just thought, how often do we do this to try to numb the pain of life east of Eden? But see, there's nothing that you can buy that will get you back. There's nothing you can drink or eat or make or be awarded with or have spoken over you that will get you back? How are you navigating the pains of life outside of Eden? How are you navigating the pains of life under the curse? And are you looking to God to fulfill his promises, to give you more than you could have ever dreamed of? Because you see, it is true. We will never get back to Eden. But God actually promises us something better. This is Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. God says, you want to get back to Eden, I have something better. I have something better. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their east of Eden existence. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making 
all things new. And remember that loving action of God when he banished the man and his wife lest they eat from the tree of life? In Revelation chapter 22, that tree makes another appearance. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The crazy news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is though we had rebelled against God most high, thrown off his authority and called imprisonment good, Jesus came into our world. And Jesus, the only human being to ever live who didn't have to leave Eden, leaves the presence of God and comes after us and offers himself as a perfect sacrifice to die in our place so that we could be liberated from death, liberated from all the pains of life outside of Eden, freed from our peril under the curse and brought back home. Pray with me. Jesus what I've longed for all morning is that we would feel the weight of our sin and see the light of your glory breaking in the scene, where we would realize there's nothing we can do to get ourselves back to perfection. Nothing. There's nothing we can think. There's no club we can join. There's no degree we can earn. There's no act we can accomplish. Nothing we can do will get us back. But what are you like? You, you come and you say to us, I'll bring you back. In fact, just like your father, you come to us and you look us in the eyes and you say, how are you doing? Why is your face fallen? Let me bring you back. Living Jesus, I ask right now that you would grant us faith to hear your words and to hold fast to you so that we can come back home. It's in your name I pray, amen.